welcome back. You're listening to another incredible episode of Inside Soccer. With your host, Bill Peterson. Inside Soccer brings you the soccer fan. Expert analysis and opinion on the critical issues facing the game today. Bill will also bring you guests that have incredible stories and historical perspectives on the game. With soccer experience spanning 20 years, the Rolodex is open to bring you the voices and opinions you want. Sit back and wherever you are in the world, enjoy today's episode. Welcome back, Inside Soccer listeners. Summer's the thing of the past here. We're ramping up to bring you the best experts in the game to discuss the ideas and the topics that you want to discuss. This episode is brought to you by Top Sports Solutions. If you have a sporting challenge, Top Sports Solutions has your answer. Today, we continue our tradition of providing expert guest analysis and inside views no one else will bring you. And we have a special surprise we'll introduce in just a few minutes. But first, I want to introduce... Uh, our, our main guest of the day, uh, he's what I would call one of the originals, one of the American originals, a former MLS player, U.S. men's player, uh, coach, television talent, and overall great person in addition to being elected into the U.S. Soccer Hall of Fame. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my honor to uh, introduce Marcelo Balboa. Hello, Marcelo. How are you? I'm good, buddy. How are you guys doing? We're doing excellent. We're doing excellent. How are things in Colorado? <clears throat> no complaints. It is uh, about 80 degrees. It's probably the coolest it's been in a while. There's a nice breeze. Great day for a little training. And uh, finally, the uh, the weather is starting to turn where we're not out in 90-degree weather training every afternoon. So we're getting there. We're getting there. Yeah, I wish we were getting there. It's still in the 90s here, although I think uh, I saw something that might go into the <laughs> 70s tonight. So uh Maybe we're getting a little bit of break. You you got a beach. We have mountains. I'll take the beach. Uh, See, that's the problem. Everybody wants something they don't want. Uh, My daughter and I would be in Montana tomorrow morning if we could get there. But there you go. And I would be and I would be at the beach for a while. Yeah, yeah. I'll leave my golf clubs for you. You just and the key to the garage, and you just come in and go. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. (laughs) There you go. We're about the same height. All right, so let me uh, before we get started, let me just introduce uh, our our uh, our mystery guest today. Alejandro Candero uh, is a local uh, person here in Jacksonville who is coaching soccer, youth soccer, and has for many many years. He's played soccer. He's from Venezuela, and uh, and we've invited him in to also ask Marcelo a few questions as we go through this uh, 30, 45 minutes of. Uh, of podcast and so welcome uh, thank you thank you for having me and um i appreciate it yeah we're looking forward to it so uh and marcel i think I've, I've mentioned this to you already um um alejandro listens to the podcast and we were talking one night on the sideline and i said uh, who would you bring on next and he said marcelo balbo and i'm like oh my god that's a great that is a great idea. And uh, you and I go back to 2000, I think, when I first started with AEG. And, yep, you know, yep. we, uh, we owned the Rapids. So uh, that, was, that, was, that was great. But um, there you go. look, we're, we're glad to have you. I, I probably didn't do your introduction justice, but, but let me try to add a little bit more before the first question. If I've read this correctly, and uh, my, my crack uh, researcher – is Mr. Wikipedia. Uh, it, it, it seems like you played about 15 years, and you started out in the NASL, I believe, uh, of which your father. I, 
Go ahead. I, you know, I don't even know what league I started in. I okay. Gotta be honest with you. I, I, I think it was I in San Diego. In Western, Western Soccer Alliance, which was an American soccer alliance. Uh, so it, before it all finally went to USL. Yep. I think I played. I played in every league possible, from the Nomads to the Blackhawks, and then the Colorado Foxes. And I think I have three. There's like three different leagues that I played in. Oh my that gosh. They kept on switching. So there you we'll go. go. With whatever's so, on Wikipedia. See, that's why you're one of the American originals. You were there during the uh, gunslinging days. I know uh, it says your father <laughs> played in the NASL. Uh, you were at Cerritos yeah. for a short time, but long enough for him to retire your jersey number three. And uh, yeah. you also played, and I didn't realize this until I started looking, 127 appearances for the men's national team. And we're going to get into that a little bit, but that is amazing, including being team captain. So, uh, And then a transition into the front office, which you transitioned out of into broadcasting and coaching, which was smart yeah. on your part. And uh, <laughs> you're, doing, you're doing quite well for yourself. So, yeah, we're glad you're here for sure. So let's get started. Um, Marcelo, share with our listeners uh, who do come from all over the world, uh, how and where did you get involved with soccer and, and why did you get involved in soccer coming out of Chicago? Um, well, one, it's in the blood. My dad is Argentinian. Mom's Argentinian. My dad played professional soccer in Argentina for Comunicaciones and also Argentina Junior. So he started playing there, and they got to a point where they were just getting ready to start, and I think it was just the initial phase of And I don't know if it was the North American Soccer League yet, but it was, it was right before the NASL kicked in. My dad got an opportunity to come play in Chicago with the Chicago Mustangs mm-hmm. <clears throat> where he was fortunate enough to have met Bob Gansler and they were teammates. So my dad decided to take that opportunity, uh, in 60, I believe it was 65, uh, came there. Me and my brother were born in Chicago and that's kind of the way we, we, we got here to the United States. Uh, if not, we would probably still be in Argentina because that my dad looked at that as an opportunity to, to come to the United States and to, to start something different, start a new life. And, uh, and blessed, you know, blessed that he did that because who knows where I would be or where I'd be playing if, uh, if we stayed in Argentina. So that's kind of the way we kind of moved into, into the United States, my mom and dad. I mean, they watched TV. They learned English from watching TV. My dad learned more English, uh, playing, uh, playing soccer. And and I think it was in 60, beginning of 66 that season my dad brought out my mom and uh and from there we we've been uh in the united states ever since that's the great american story i mean that's uh that's fantastic so so in in addition to your father and your family who outside of your family may have had the most influence in you uh for you in, in developing your interest in soccer here in the united states Oh, you know, uh, my dad coached me until I was pretty much 18, 19. So between, uh, I'd have to go first and foremost, my dad, my dad was the guy that would come home from work. My dad was the guy that would work graveyard. We'd get home from school. We'd do our homework and then we're outside practicing with my dad. And listen, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't always good because he would get frustrated, you know, cause we're doing our best. But, you know, he had, he had certain demands on us 
um, that he expected. And uh, so every day it was outside with dad sacrificing his sleep for, for us being outside and training. So my dad coached me until I was 18. And then at 18, 17, 18, my dad and uh, Todd uh, Bullback in California coached us both, uh, coached me and my brother. And I always played up. I never played at my age group. I always played up with my brother um, because I didn't want to play on, on a different team. So I always chose to, to play with him. And, uh, and again, uh, he was, he was another mentor because he was one of those types of player that had so much skill. Um, you know, he could dribble, he can do everything. The only problem my brother had is he didn't have the, the passion or the heart or the stupidity, whatever one you want to go with <clears throat> to chase a soccer ball. Like I would, uh, my dad always used to say that, between me and my brother, if the wall, if there was a wall and the ball was kicked on the other side of the fence, my brother would find a way around it or go around the extra mile to get to that ball. I would be the dummy that would try to break through the wall and run through the wall to get that ball. So um, I've had, I've been, I've been blessed at a young age that my dad took the time, sacrifice to to train me. And, and listen, it wasn't all, you know. Uh, uh, roses all the time because we, me and my brother kind of giggle now because back then my dad had three speeches on the ride home. And let me tell you the ride home of 45 minutes to an hour where we played. And it was, you know, a, B and C, a, you suck today. You did this. This is B was you were okay, but you need to do better. And we rarely got three, which was, you guys were great today. That's probably the best I've seen you play. So the standards were high. The standards were high. Cause my dad was an ex player his expectations were high and we wanted to meet those expectations. So that's kind of, I, I gotta be honest, that's my dad was, was it. And my brother were my role model. Yeah. Alejandro. Um, Marcelo, I have a question. Um, were you having in your mind a plan to be a professional soccer player when you were doing all this? Uh, you want the truth, Alejandro, or do you want, you want me to make it nice <laughs> for you? I know the truth. I know what you're going to say, but I hated, uh, I hated school. I was not oh. good at school. I, uh, I, no, and I'm just being honest. I struggled in school because learning English from mom and dad and, and having the trouble of transitioning from speaking Spanish to going to English, I struggled in school so bad. I was a C student at, at best. Um, sports kept me, kept me alive. Sports, because I knew if I didn't have a C average, I couldn't play sports. So, you know, it was one of those things that I knew that at that time there wasn't an opportunity for us to be professional athletes. There was no professional soccer league. The only thing you ever saw was the Olympic team. And I remember going to Cerritos at Gar high school and seeing the Olympic team play. And the Olympic team had uh, Hugo Perez at the time, had Ricky Davis, had uh, Brent Goulet, <clears throat> had those kind of players. And, uh, I remember that day I told myself that I, that's what I wanted. I wanted to play soccer, but I didn't know how I didn't know how to pursue a, a professional career. So the next logical step, as you sat down and figured things out with my dad is I had to go to college because there were no opportunities for an American to go overseas and, and do those kind of things. And, and I got lucky that throughout Throughout my career, um, I got, I didn't listen, I didn't make ODP, and I don't know if ODP is, is something that hasn't been around in a while, but I didn't make my ODP in California until I was 18 years old. 
And at 18 years old, we went to Colorado Springs. And it was the West versus the East, the North, the South, the Midwest. They had almost like a sports festival there, a smaller version of it, for the U.S. for the U.S. under-20 national team coach, who never showed up for the <laughs> tournament. And uh, I happened to be a center back. Uh, we won the tournament. I scored three goals throughout the tournament. And when the coach picked the under-20 team that was going to go to Russia, he picked all the players that he knew from the East Coast and a few players from the West Coast. So at that point, um, motivated me even more and got frustrated. Well, a few months later, you talk about uh, lucky or being at, at the right place at the right time. So now we're playing State Cup. They just announced that Derek Armstrong and Stevie Highway, the old Liverpool legend, we're going to be the under-20 head coaches. Well, we're playing in State Cup. We face up against the San Diego Nomads. We beat the San Diego Nomads. They're the first team to go to regionals and win regionals. So Derek saw me play. He kind of already knew who I was in Southern California. And he gave me an opportunity to, to play with the under-20 national team. So at that point there, now it started sinking in that I may have a chance of maybe playing this for a living, you know, but remember I didn't take the pathway that a lot of other people have taken. I went from high school. I played two years in junior college, which a lot of people don't know. I played at Cerritos junior college for two years because I wanted to play in the under 20 world cup. And I did not want to go to college because the college side, the university side might've not let me go. So I enrolled at Cerritos college for two years and trained and played games there to get ready to play with the under-20. From the under-20 World Cup, I got a full ride to go to San Diego State, and the full national team saw me play and invited me into a camp in 88. So, again, right place, right time, but not one time did I say, okay, I want to go play because we had no professional leagues, we had no professional teams here. It's how do I get myself to Mexico? Because I thought Mexico would be the best style of play for me. So that's kind of my, my little journey of hoping to play, didn't really know how I was going to do it, and everything just kind of luckily fell into place with hard work. Thanks for your answer. Um, adding to that, uh, how much time did you spend um, training versus playing and um, with your team or by yourself? How, how was that upbringing? Because it looked like you pretty much were players were on their own at that time. It seems like it. No, there, listen, club wasn't that club soccer wasn't that big yet. So we trained, we trained back then three times a week and we would play a game on a Saturday and we would try to get in and there, the tournaments weren't that big. So we didn't really travel to a lot, a lot of tournaments. So it was basically three times a week with my, with our club team. The other three times it was, let's say we trained on a, Let's say it was Monday. I think it was Monday, Wednesday, Thursday. Friday, we would train with my dad. Tuesday, we trained with my dad. Sunday, we would train with my dad. And Saturday, we'd play a game. So it was for us, listen, it, being South American, being European, uh, soccer's in the blood. We live and breathe. I was brought up as a River Plate fan. As a young kid, as I was born, I was a River Plate fan because that's who the family supported. So it's in the blood. It was in the blood. The passion was in the blood. It's just in the U.S. at that time, there wasn't really many places where we can train and practice every day. So I played club. I played high school. I even played semi-pro when I was in high school up in Daniels Field 
in San Pedro up in the mountains, I was playing on Sunday semi-pro at 15, 16. I was playing with 20, 25-year-olds to 35-year-old kids as adults on Sundays to get more games in. So um, you can practice as much as you want, but at the end of the day, uh, you develop your skills that you practice. You only develop them at high speeds and at playing at higher levels. That's an amazing story. I mean, uh, it, it may sound a little chaotic to the kids and the parents uh, today, but you know, I would say you had a plan. Your plan was to take advantage of every opportunity you had and spend as much time on the field as you possibly could. And and obviously, you had the support of uh, your father, who knew yeah. something about the game as yeah. well. So that's pretty cool. Let, let's fast forward a little bit. So now you're in professional soccer. Um, just generally, what's the difference between those early days and, and what players are experiencing today from a player standpoint? Well, you know, there's a huge difference. And because there's MLS, um, we've had the World Cup in the United States. That opened up a lot of eyes to a lot of people. But I played. We were playing in, in high school stadiums. We were playing, even with the national team in the early, in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, we were playing uh, in Miami at the Orange Bowl, I believe it was the old Orange Bowl, and we were drawing 5,000 people. So mm-hmm. soccer was a sport that was just coming up. People really didn't know what it was. They didn't really, the, the only thing we saw, and remember here in the United States, when I was a kid, the only thing I could ever watch was soccer made in Germany. And everybody watched that show. On, on Sundays after the games are played on Saturday, but there was no way of getting a soccer game on TV uh, or anything like that. Fast forward to now, uh, I can flip any channel now from ESPN, Fox, because there's Fox 2, Fox Plus, ESPN Plus, Univision, Tudene. You can catch a game anywhere. Anywhere being sports, you can catch a game anywhere. So the opportunities these kids have now with the academy with all these tournaments you can play and all these showcases you can go to back then, the only way we got seen is if a college coach, which was the big recruiting back then would go to the high school games. They would have to go to a high school game and watch you play in order to see you play and maybe give you some sort of scholarship to go and play, or if they see you playing state cup, so the opportunity that these young men have at academies that start at 12 years old, the MLS academies that start at 12 years old, and they're being they're being scouted at 14 now. So back then there was no scouting. They waited till you were a junior, and if you're good enough at a junior, they would offer you a scholarship. So times times have changed. I think if you look at the players now, they're they're a little bigger, they're a little stronger. Um, I'm not going to say they're more technical because if you look at the group of players we had from Tab Ramos to John Hark to Hugo Perez, uh, Eric Winalda, Ernie Stewart, those guys were very, even Roy Wegley who played in England, they were very technical. So I think the difference uh, physically is they're a little bigger, stronger because of all of the, uh, and you go with all the uh, stats and data that you can put a GPS on a kid and figure out how much you ran in a game, how, how many sprints you ran. So there's a there's a huge difference of what these young men are very fortunate to have compared to what we have. So you bring up a couple of things, and uh, and Alejandro has another question. But do do you think sometimes it's too technical now? And and I'll, I'll relay a story back about the same time I met you. We did some work with uh, Klinsman and 
you know, you can love him or hate him, but he's Klinsman. And uh, we're sitting around one day, and I'm like, Jurgen, how can we have so many people playing this game? And and relatively, we're we're not that good on a global basis at the time. This is early 2000. <clears throat> and his yeah. his answer was, it's too structured here. And yeah. he said the best players in the world, include himself, which, okay, we can argue that too, but he probably fits in uh-huh. there. Um, yep. The best players in the world played in the streets. They played on dirt. They played wherever. They just played. Yep. They played, they played, yep. they played. And, you know, and for me, growing up playing American football, that's what we did. We played in the streets. We yep. You know, run down to my grandmother's back door and cut across, and I'll hit you, right? You know, I mean, that was that's how we did it. And um, so that was a point. I'm, I'm always curious what people who've been, you know, involved, who, who succeeded then and are still involved now think about that change and that evolution. And then also the college yeah. point and how that ties into the same question, really, because I, I watch club soccer here in this country, and I watch you know the the really focus on the club side of we got to put these kids in college, and, and I get that. And there's a lot of parents, and there's a lot of people that would like to see their kids go to college and play <clears throat> soccer or get a scholarship or whatever. But at some point, I think sometimes maybe you lose a little bit of focus as well as to you know developing players and 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 letting them have a good experience, things like that. But and I also see – I don't know that I see great – and Alejandro, this is for you too a little bit. I don't know if I see great recruiting. I see a lot of people out there. I see a lot of these for-profit companies, you know, trying to reach out yeah. and touch kids and everything else. And the parents are confused too, by the way. They, they need a league for educating parents on what the hell is really going on yeah. uh, with this whole yeah. process. But um, anyway, let me stop there. I, I'm, I'm, I'm unloading a lot of stuff. <laughs> and uh, let's get your response and we'll go to Alejandro. Yeah, that's the way I do it. That was a lot. Um, here, here's my, when you go on a weekend and you go to a soccer game, what are the most common words you hear a coach say? Pass the ball. Don't dribble. Pass the ball. We're taking away something that a kid naturally has been gifted, a kid that can dribble. I can't teach a kid how to dribble. That's a confidence thing. and That's something he has. I can teach a kid to pass. I can teach all the other. I can't teach a kid to run faster. That's a natural God-given ability. So when we're taking away the ability for these kids to be creative and have that confidence that they can dribble, now they have to fall into a very structured way of playing. Move the ball, pass the ball, run here, run there. Everybody's trying to make a name for themselves through coaching youth soccer sometimes. And that's what I see on the weekend. Uh, You have to let kids be themselves. You have to let the kids have a natural ability. Let that come out and let them do it. If it's dribbling and he's got pace, let him dribble. He's good. Listen, we're all, we all learn. Messi learned by dribbling like that, getting kicked. He learned when to release the ball, when to dribble a guy, when he doesn't have to. Those, that's part of the process of what we have. The problem here in the United States is we take that creativity and that freedom away from that kid, and we try to put him in this category that he belongs in. He's a midfielder. He needs to do this. No, he can do other things. So the college piece, listen, I think the college piece, there's always there's room for college because not every kid's going to be a pro. And I think there's always going to be a, a few special kids in every state that when they reach 16, 17, should not be going into a college environment. They should be playing at a MLS level, a USL level, and getting training every day instead of training 20 hours a week. And no, this is no disrespect. I think there's a, a, a great place for college in this town and, and in this country, but 
there's always a special player too that should bypass going to college and, and go to an environment where they're going to be training every day with older players. That's why I think MLS now seeing that that U19 level is a good level, but it's not where it needs to be. So now they're talking about building a U23 league. So now this gives this kid an opportunity to be at 18, 19, 20. You keep him till he's 23 and see where he develops. There's going to be schooling opportunities where they can finish their school. But again, uh, there are places and there are path. Everybody has a different pathway. The pathway is not always going to be 17, sign a homegrown contract, and you're with the pro team. It's not for every kid. Some kids are going to have to go to college and play in three years and then mature, and then they come out before their senior year. Some will go into the draft. Some will go into the USL. But at the end of the day, I, I think here we, at a younger age, we take away this natural ability that God's given these kids, and we're changing them to pass the ball. And then all of a sudden now they're not happy playing soccer. That's why you see parents move their kids to four or five different clubs on average by the time they're 18. Just my opinion. Uh, I think it's a good one. I think it's a good one. Alejandro? Yeah, I, I was going to change gears, but I have one more point about what he said. He couldn't say more correct about that. And I think there's also the fear of coaches of losing games at the youth level. And they specialize players like, oh, go play defense and stays on defense because he's the best defender, but then he doesn't learn to play other yeah. positions. And then yeah. Yeah. we, as coaches, we want control, and so we don't want to have anything out of our control, which is when the player, like, yeah, you're right. Messi never, nobody ever told Messi how to dribble. If you look at video of Messi playing when yeah. he was six years old, seven years old, it's the yeah, same dribble exactly. that he does today. Right. So nobody yeah, told him look that. At, look at, look at, look at Pulisic. And I'm just going by oh, Americans. Look yeah. at Pulisic. What he does, they didn't, they didn't tell him to pass the ball. Do what you do best. You'll figure it out. But let him develop the skill that it's been given to him. Just like Ronaldo, just like Mbappe, Neymar. Do you think they told Neymar to pass the ball in Brazil? No chance. No it's, chance. So. It's interesting you started off with the the piece about passing. And, and look, I, I've, I've got a daughter that plays. I don't even know if she's interested in playing in college. It doesn't matter. But she uh, yeah. you know, she went to one of these showcases once. And, and I asked somebody, I go, what you know, what's this all about? And they're like, just tell her to keep the ball and don't pass it. Because the college coaches don't there care you if you can pass. Everyone can pass in this country. They want to know what you can do yeah. with the ball. So I told her that in the car. She goes, exactly. Dad, that's not what they taught us to do. And I go, I'm just telling you what, what I heard. You know? But, uh, yeah. you know, you just you just said it right there. Yeah, it's but crazy. it's not only in the U.S., though. I've right. seen it on yesterday. I was looking at a video of a pain, and they were, like, just rehearsing this play from the back. We know opposition, and they're just passing back and forth. And they're like, and, and yeah. Pattern play. It's pattern play, but it, if you start doing pattern play at 12 years old, like, there's not going to learning to do. I think pattern play is okay for a professional team to have a plan or something, but for right. younger players, you definitely yeah. need a little chaotic environment. Yeah, but, right. but Alejandro, we're talking, about, we're talking about Barcelona. And when you play for Barcelona, they've already picked the best kids yeah. in that area. So those kids already know how to dribble. Now they're trying to get them to understand pattern play ball in ball out where you should be in a game that pattern will come into play but that pattern will come into play with the ability that those kids have it may be an extra dribble it may be an extra touch but they're learning where to be in case he gets into trouble you know what i'm saying so i'm okay with that because you've already got the best 12 just like just like real they've got the best kids in their area 
they already they already got the passing down. They got this. Now it's about teaching them how we're going to play, and then letting you put your own flair, the the ability God gave you, to make sure you work in that system. Because if I know if I dribble here, and I beat this guy, I know to my right there's going to be a player there if I need to pass or dribble. You know what I'm saying? So I don't mind that. But these kids are are special players that they're able to get from all over the world. At our level, it's completely different. We're still teaching technical stuff, how to pass a ball, how to trap a ball, you know, how to hit the ball with the outside of your foot. So I, I hate comparing what we do here to teams like in Spain or even in Brazil or Argentina because those kids play every single day. And the street smart that they have, they bring in, just like Neymar, the street smart he had from futsal and everything else, he brought to what? Professional soccer. And it's amazing. So I'm okay at those top, top levels, teaching them the patterns already, because that's, once they get that done, they move on and they go to something else. You know what I mean? Yeah. Talking about Pulisic, uh, he played his first game here in Jacksonville. That was the game I think yeah. Clisson brought him up. Mm -hmm. I couldn't sit down every time he took the ball. <laughs> he was awesome to watch. Right. And, and completely, we don't even know how he was developed. I know he went to Germany young, play older players, yep. and yep. under assistant, yep. he was challenged. Alejandro, he's from Pennsylvania. That's the hotbed yep. of soccer in this country. He's from Hershey, right? The secret Hershey. hotbed. It's a secret hotbed. <laughs> yeah. We haven't told yeah, anybody listen, yet. Yeah, listen, these, these younger kids, if there's an opportunity, look at the kids that have played a little bit in the U.S. and then they've left Weston McKinney. So that's my next question. Hold on, hold on. That's my next question is what are your thoughts about that sort of migration of what it seems like a lot of quality players who are earning quality time and quality spots in Europe right now? How does that come back to help us here in this country? Um, I don't know if it's going to help us in this country, but it's going to help the U.S. national team. Yep. The experience that Weston McKinney's getting, the Tyler Adams is getting, all these players way uh, You can keep going down the leg, Zach Steffen. I mean, uh, Jonathan Brooks, uh, Miatska, all of these guys playing in Europe is, is, is giving them an ability to play at the best level possible, and most of these kids are under the age of 23. They could play on the Olympic team and not be – an older player on that Olympic team. So the, the way they develop them there, the way they have to work, the way it's just everything about it is what's making these kids better and making this U S national team better. Listen, I told you, I'll say it again. The U S national team will qualify for this world cup and it's not going to be a walkthrough like Mexico did last time, but they will qualify for this world cup and they will surprise some people because of the fact that this is a very young, talented, hungry Uh, a team with pride, a team that wants to represent that red, white, and blue jersey and take that bad taste out of everybody's mouth that we did not qualify for the last World Cup. We have a habit in, in U.S. soccer, because I've been in it a long time, we have a habit of keeping guys too long in a cycle. So they get to the point where they're good enough, but there's younger talent. We don't want to take a chance with the younger talent, so we're going to keep this guy another two years. And let them develop. That's that's baloney. Yeah, I've been in other 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 exactly. sports. They they call them pipeline yeah. pipeline blockers. Exactly. Yeah. So for me, now that we have these young kids in, it's nice to see these young kids getting this opportunity. 
Yes, you have to mix in a few veterans, but not a lot and not a lot because you got to let these young kids play because this team is going to grow over the next two years in the World Cup and in 2026 in the United States. I expect them to be at least in the quarterfinals with that young team. If everybody's healthy and they get the right draw, that's, that's a quarterfinal team to me. Well, I think, I'll tell you what, I think, and, and we're, we're going to talk about the women's side in a minute, but from the boys' side, they really know who those guys are. You know, they're emulating them. They're out yeah. there. They're, they see now a pathway to go play for a team yeah. they were just watching on TV a year ago. And uh, I think nothing could be better. The second thing, and I'm not here to promote Jurgen. I love Jurgen, but I'm not here to promote him. But about 15 years after the first quote, I heard him in a meeting say, we will not perform well in the World Cup until our team all plays in the Champions League. And, and, and uh, he, um, you know, you might be right. I'm he not going to disagree with him. I the best players in the world are there. Fight. And we're getting yeah. there. My point fight is, I, I feel like we're getting there. Uh, listen, despite what happened with Jurgen on the U.S. national team, Jurgen's a good guy. Jurgen did a lot of things that we couldn't do throughout the years going to Italy, beating Italy there, and all these wonderful things. So, listen, I, I think Jurgen is, is 99 point right. I think most of I don't think they're all going to play in Champions League, but they have to play at a high level. Yep. They have to play. Going to Europe and sitting on the bench is not going to help us or them. Yep. Good so point. these kids that are playing, they need to be playing consistently every day, and they are right now. Most of the guys that are in Europe are playing, so that's a huge bonus for us. And again, listen, you go back to when Mexico ran through the whole qualifiers. Most of those players were playing in Europe. They were playing in Champions League. They were playing in high-level leagues, and they just ran through the table. They ran through the table and qualified. So there, there is a point to be said that even Juan Carlos Osorio from Mexico said the same thing, that his players need to be playing in Europe. Not all of them can be playing in Liga Mekis. Yep. You, you guys are right. Champions League is the highest level you could play soccer. If you compare a Champions yeah. League game, it, it'd be better than most of World Cup games. Right. Yep. Yep. The level and the pace. And so you are both positive. You are very hopeful about the U.S. team, national team future. Is that what you guys said? 100%. 100%. I need that because I haven't been excited about the U.S. national team in a while. And it has to do with yeah, what you said. Be, uh, a lot of players that stay there, it's not their fault. If, if I get picked and I want to play yeah. the U.S. national team, I'm good. It's just the coaches like yeah. finding these players and giving the opportunities. Yeah. Listen, Alejandro, I, I think what happened is a lot of weird things happened with U.S. soccer. Go back and look at that team. You know, it was very strange to see some of the guys that were there on that team. And the thing that Bruce Arena did different, which surprised me, is they played Panama and Orlando, and they beat Panama. And Bruce Arena, in every game leading up to that, a home game and an away game, because there's only four days between games, he would always switch between three and five, three and six players for the next game to put some fresh bodies on the field. Bruce Arena decided that he was going to reward that team that played against Panama and play them in Trinidad. Mm. Well, in Trinidad, the field was wet. It was soggy. The grass was thick. Mm. And why would you switch? Why, in your mind, would you reward a player for winning the game at home. To me, the objective is qualifying for the World Cup. So 
So do what you've done. Put some fresh bodies out on that field and do what you normally do. I think Bruce Arena got complacent. I think he got too complacent thinking, we're going to beat Trinidad. They're playing a B team, and I'm going to let these guys enjoy the, the, the roots and the rewards of the victory. Well, you know what? That's the biggest failure in U.S. soccer history right now, that we did not qualify for that World Cup and losing to Trinidad, second team, because he went against what he's done all qualifier, changed three to five different bodies. You had tired legs. You had guys that were fatigued. The legs were heavy, and it showed. It showed. And maybe, you know what, this group we talked about, some guys were shouldn't have been on that cycle, should have been replaced by younger players, and maybe they got overconfident too because – at the end of the day, we didn't go to the World Cup in Panama, did. No one's immune to the heat of the hot seat and the bright lights. I mean, everybody, uh, everybody's experienced it at some point. So, uh, look, we can't we, live off 2002, man. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward now, and that's uh, what happened. There happened, and. There's been a lot of changes and a lot of uh, things happening, so we're hoping that uh, you know it's a new day and everything comes out. Uh, these guys come out gangbusters and uh, are ready to roll and and you know have a little chip on their shoulder, but a lot of them won't, do, won't even do. be there, you know. So that's uh, yep. it's also an interesting part of this. So uh, yep. l- l- let me ask you your question, and we're going to start to back up against the timing, so we might do a little quick fire, okay. but. Tell me your yeah. thoughts on NWSL. What you're seeing, what you feel, what you think uh, is going well. What could they do better? You know what? I'll be honest with you. I, I watched the tournament in Salt Lake, and I thought they did an absolutely fantastic job. The commissioner, everybody did a fantastic job in that tournament. And uh, I think now, from what I understand, they're, they're on CBS Sports and CBS, which is fantastic for them. And, you know, it's like anything else. It's they've they've got to be put on prime time. They've got to be put on on a major network, you know, to be able to promote themselves, to promote what they do, and uh, and what they do is fantastic. Listen, we we've got the best women's team in the world. They're more athletic, they're stronger, they're faster, and that's why they've won back to back World Cups. So uh, I think you just like anything else. I, I think you need to be able to put it on a prime time channel. And to be able to to be able to see it more, because I think before it was on a few other channels, and it was difficult to find unless you knew where it was at. But listen, uh, like anything else, I think it's starting to grow. I think I saw the other day it's what the uh, the Angels of Los Angeles or something like that. It's an all women's yeah. ownership group, which is absolutely fantastic. Uh, you can see that the sport's moving in the right direction, men and women. And, uh, and that's all we want, you know. At the end of the day, we want to see the women succeed, the men succeed, soccer in general. I'm not talking national team. I'm talking soccer in general. The women are getting opportunities like the men to play professional soccer, to live their dream, to do something that as a kid we all wanted to do. So I, I think it's great. It's moving in the right direction. I think it's one of the fastest growing segments of sport there is. I mean, if you look at what's happening in Europe – I mean, and when I lived there in the 90s, if you mentioned women's soccer, people just start laughing and go, they only play that in the U.S., you know. I mean, mean, they didn't even admit that they played it. And now, not only are the top clubs fielding women's teams, but other clubs are fielding women's teams. And again, we're starting to see uh, somewhat of a migration of American players going over there to play. 
which I yeah. think will help some things, especially when it comes around the World Cup and the Olympics, which is the reload that's needed here to keep driving the interest, I think. I mean, that's really that's really what they've had. And all the other attempts at, at leagues and not taking anything away from them, it's been hard. Uh, no. I thought the Challenge Cup was easy to watch and fun yeah. to watch. Uh, they did a good job of producing the, the games. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, 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 it's growing quickly, and it's going to continue to grow, and um, it's going to be exciting to watch. So that's interesting. Okay, so. Yeah, well, listen, again, you got the Olympics coming up. That's a huge promotion platform for the U.S. women's national team and the league. So, and look at most of the better women that are in the, in the, on the national teams and the majority of them are playing in the United States. So again, it's growing, it's moving in the right direction and, and I'm excited for them. Okay. Alejandro. I just, that's wanted to, uh, that, that's why I coach girls. <laughs> you want to be with the winner. There you go. Oh God. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you got a whole table here. I uh, might ask a question for him. Okay. Go ahead. Do you think, um, your career soccer would have been, um, I don't know, like, maybe you would have jumped to Europe if the bicycle kick in 94 would have gone in. <laughs> I didn't know that was coming. Um, no. No, no, no. <laughs> I had offers after the World Cup. Uh, and listen, I almost didn't play in the World Cup because I tore my ACL nine months before the World Cup. So I was blessed enough to be able to heal quickly enough. And, and I was very thankful for Bore to keep me in the loop and trusting that I would work hard enough to get back to be a starter on that team. So... Now, listen, that bicycle kick um, was something I had a dream as a kid. I saw Pele do it. And to have been able to score it in the biggest tournament in the world would have been awesome. To this day, people still talk about how close it was and what a great shot it was. But I had offers already to go to Colombia. I had offers to go to Turkey. I had offers in a few different places. I, and after the World Cup, I went to Greece to play at Olympiacos. I signed a contract, but I couldn't play because they had too many foreigners, and the foreigner that they wanted to get rid of wouldn't leave. So I ended up, that's how I ended up in Mexico with, uh, with Puebla calling me. So I had some nice offers after the World Cup, so I don't think that bicycle kick, if it would have gone in, it would have been a highlight reel that you would have seen for years and years on FIFA. But I don't think it would have gotten me any more money. I don't think it would have gotten me a better team. I think maybe, maybe, maybe I would have got a Harley motorcycle out of it, you know, as a as a sponsorship, as a bike. But that's about it. Maybe a Schwinn. Who knows? Well, you scored in 2008, goal of the year, correct? It was the same basic. Uh, 2000, yes. Yeah. I saw that right after yeah. I watched the other one. Yeah. Very good. Okay, so look, we're uh, a few years later. We're up. We're up against some time, so we got four more questions. We'll do it sort of quick fire. All right. Uh, first one is who is your toughest competitor? Toughest competitor. Um, that's too hard because I played Bebeto Ronaldo or, uh, Romario. I played against, uh, uh against Canilla. I played against Batistuta. So I would say just because we lost would be, uh, Bebeto and Romario. That's a that's a great list. <laughs> you're, you're 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 forgiven for giving more than one. Uh, yeah. Number two, key to being a great defender. Um, wanting to be a defender, having the mindset that you want to be a defender, believing that that's your position and you want to play it. That's the that's the the key to it because a lot of kids play it, but they're not happy because they want to be forwards or midfielders. 
uh, understanding that you're a defender, that you want to be the best defender in the world, the best defender in the United States, uh, believing that that's your position and embracing it. You just killed me at home, Marcel. I've, I've been trying to talk my daughter out of playing uh, defender forever. And she's like, no, I like seeing everything in front of me. I like the angles. I like taking the ball. This night I go, no, no, you got to move. It, you you got to move up. She's like, it, I don't want to. I want to be a defender. Yeah. Oh, I, man. I'll give you really quick. Well, my dad told me when I was a kid. My dad told me, if you're going to be a center back, you've got to be different. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, you've got to be good on set pieces. You've got to be able to jump higher than most people. Your timing's got to be better. But you got to be a defender who's willing to go forward and score goals. So that's what's going. To, that's yeah. the beauty of, of why I embrace that position. Yeah, great, great answer. Okay, number three, um, and you can take a little bit of time on this one. What did it mean to you personally to be elected to the uh, or inducted into the Hall of Fame? Ooh, that's uh, you know, when I started playing, I did not even know what the Hall of Fame was if they had a Hall of Fame, but I wanted to leave a legacy behind for my kids. And I think that was important. So when they had kids, they can say, man, look at grandpa. That was grandpa who did this stuff. So to be able to leave a legacy behind so the the grandkids, you know, you can leave that legacy behind. And uh, that was important to me. Now, being in the Hall of Fame, uh, I guess, made me feel more at ease because I never knew if the media liked me or didn't like me because the way I played, I was very hard. I tackled. Um, I did things that, uh, that most people said I was Rambo. I would self-destruct. And, uh, so like I said, that to me, it was finally, uh, verifying that, that, that the media and my peers, um, liked me as a player and that I was a good player. Very good. Alejandro, last question. I just want to ask if he still plays. Do you still play? Do what? Do you still play? I do still play. I still play with my with my U14s. I play every Sunday in an adult league over 48. I play Thursday nights. I play futsal. And on Monday nights, I play indoor. So I get my, my fair share of running around. Yeah, I can't it's retire either. I'll always, I'll, always, I'll always play. If my legs allow me and my heart allows me, I'll always play. Awesome. I got two of you here. Alejandro's the same way. Well, look, uh, one, uh, you've earned it and deserve to be in that Hall of Fame. And I only knew you as a person, really, not so much as a player, because when we first met, I didn't know that much about the game, to be honest with you. Um, But I knew you as a person, and you're a fantastic person. You've never never veered from that. And then doing the research for this show and, and just seeing all the things you've done on the field, I was like, well, of course he's in the Hall of Fame. He, he deserves to be there. So uh, <laughs> congratulations on that. We're going to, we're going to, uh, to wrap this up. But uh, Marcelo Balbo, we appreciate you taking time to be with us on Inside Soccer. We're going to keep a close eye on those, those youth players you're coaching and also the Rapids, uh, not one that we get too much out here on the East Coast, but now we got a reason to watch and, and go back to cheering for him. So thank you very much for joining there you us. Go. And for all of our Thanks for having me, guys, absolutely. Anytime, actually, we'll get you back sometime uh, during the season, maybe, and give us an update of what's going on there. But uh, in the meantime, inside soccer listeners, be sure to catch all of our episodes, which can be found on most pod platforms. 
uh, or at www.insidetopsports.com. Uh, we're on Apple, Google, Spotify, iHeart, Stitcher, and of course, uh, our sort of home uh, at Buzzsprout. But uh, we enjoy having you here. We enjoyed having Marcelo and Alejandro here. That was fantastic, Alejandro. Thank you. Thanks. And uh, we'll see everybody uh, next Tuesday. Thank you. Thank you.